Okay, wonderful. Well, it's really good to see you all this morning. Uh, do hope you're keeping well. So we are continuing our preaching series in the book of Galatians, uh, entitled Set Free, Live Free. Uh, and the book of Galatians is all about God's grace. So Paul is writing uh, to a bunch of churches that he planted in the region of Galatia, which is basically modern-day Turkey. And what he's trying to communicate throughout this book is that being a Christian is not about what you do. It's all about what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And you see, the Galatians had turned away from that gospel of grace. And Paul is so annoyed. He's like, that is a foolish thing to do, Galatians. That is a stupid thing to do. Let's just look at the first verse of Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Just, just look at what Paul says. Just go back. Here it is. You foolish Galatians. This is Paul speaking. You fools. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. You can tell that Paul is vexed about this. Now, let me tell you a true story about a man called Charles Blondin. He lived 1824 to 1897. There he is. That's a picture of him. And this man is famous because he tightrope walked across the Niagara Falls. I mean, you can go and see all the pictures there on the internet. He would set up a rope across the Niagara Falls, and he would walk across. But he was so confident that he didn't just walk across. There's pictures of him walking with a wheelbarrow across the Niagara Falls. There's pictures of him walking on stilts out of rope over the Niagara Falls. There's even a picture of him sat on a stool having a meal across the Niagara Falls. I mean, this guy is bonkers. But his most famous trick was when he asked for a volunteer to be carried on his back and walk over that tightrope to the other side. I mean, I wonder if you would do that. But apparently a man did volunteer, and again, you can see the pictorial evidence, and he put supreme trust in Charles Blondin, and he carried him to the other side. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, imagine halfway across, this guy is on the back of Charles Blondin, and all has gone well, and they are halfway across the rope across Niagara Falls. Imagine the man saying to Charles Blondin, actually, I don't trust you anymore, mate. I think I'll get off and I'll go myself. Let me have a go. I'll walk from here. I mean, you can imagine what Charles Blondin would say to the watching friends and family. Look, are you out of your mind, mate? Do you know how difficult this is? You won't get across on your own. This will only end badly. That is exactly the reaction that Paul has on hearing that the Galatians are turning from the gospel. 
He's saying, look, you foolish Galatians. You're turning to the law. You're turning to getting circumcised. You're turning to saying it's all about what you do. That is utter madness. It's like getting off Charles Blondin's back at the Niagara Falls and trying to go on your own. Paul says in that verse one, who bewitched you? Who bewitched you, Galatians? What happened? How could you think this way? What drew you away? Verse one, he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Portrayed in the Greek means displayed for all to see. Like on one of those massive billboards you see sometimes at roundabouts. Paul's saying, look, you saw, it was displayed for you all to see. You saw Jesus die on the cross for your sins in your place. So how now can you try and go your own way? How, why now try and add to that? And what we have in the rest of chapter 3, which we're going to go through this morning, is we're going to look at three compelling arguments that Paul gives to the Galatians to, to show them that they've been so foolish. Let's read verses 2 to 5, Galatians chapter 3. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask you, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So the first argument that Paul gives is a personal argument based on the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, Paul asks a simple question to stop the stupidity of the Galatians. He asks them, how did you become a Christian? Was it by what you did? Was it by the law? Or was it by the Spirit? And in verse 3, he says, look, it was by the Holy Spirit. You became a Christian by the Holy Spirit. So you may ask, Mark, well, what does the Holy Spirit do? In terms of salvation, what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit convicts you and I of sin, that we have done wrong. John 16, verse 8. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit gives us an awareness of our need for God. Secondly, what does the Holy Spirit do? It's the Holy Spirit that, that makes us born again. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us new birth. It's the Holy Spirit that comes along and makes us alive in Christ. John 3 verse 5, unless one is born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then the Holy Spirit also gives us assurance that we are children of God. Romans 8 verse 15, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. But what happened in Galatia? What's happened that Paul is so vexed and so annoyed and so angry with these foolish Galatians? Well, you see, Paul preached the gospel, the good news. The Galatians had heard that. They believed the good news. They put their faith and trust in Jesus, 
and they followed the gospel. They followed and they knew that the Holy Spirit had come inside of them. And that's the same for you and I. When you and I become Christians, the same thing happens. It always begins with the Holy Spirit. Our Christian life begins with receiving the Spirit. It's not about the law we obey. It's not about circumcision. It's not about the level of holiness we attain. It's about believing in Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit. Let, let me illustrate this in another way. So I have three beautiful children, Grace, Amelia, and Levi. Grace was born October 2010 as a beautiful, healthy baby girl. Nothing needed to be added to her. As a beautiful baby child, she had a mouth to eat. She had a nose to smell. She had ears to hear. Everything was perfect when she was born. It would be very strange to have a baby born and then have to take them to the doctor every couple of months. Two months in, oh, I better take Grace to the doctor's to get her ears added. Oh, four months in, I better take Grace to the doctor to get her mouth and her nose added. Six months, oh, I better take her to the doctor to get her arms added. Twelve months, I better take Grace to the doctor to get her legs added in. It's not like that. That's a stupid way of thinking, isn't it? No, a healthy child is born with everything that that child needs for their life. It's the same with the Christian life. It's the same point that Paul is making in these first few verses of chapter 3. In the Christian life, you are born by the Spirit. There's nothing you need to do to add to that. God has done it all. So that's the first argument that Paul gives us. He says there's a personal argument here. You are born by the Spirit. That's how you are saved. Remember that. Secondly, let's read on, verses 6 to 14. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. What's Paul doing here in his second argument? His second argument, he is basing on Scripture. He's showing us from Scripture that we are saved by faith alone. 
And what Paul does in verse 6 is a bit of a masterstroke. He brings in Abraham. He brings in Abraham. Now, Paul's opponents in Galatia were, were Judaizers. They really loved the law. They were disciples of Moses. But what Paul does is he goes back to Abraham, who comes before Moses. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. And we are told from Scripture that Abraham is just like us because Abraham was saved and made righteous by faith alone. You can read it in Genesis 15. God made a promise to Abraham. And Abraham believed God despite his situation. He was old. He was frail. Nothing seemed possible. And because of Abraham's faith, because Abraham believed God, because Abraham trusted God, the Bible tells us, Genesis 15 verse 6, that it was credited to him as righteousness. Just because Abraham believed he was righteous. It was nothing that Abraham had done. Abraham did not keep the law because the law had not yet been given. Abraham was not circumcised because that had not yet been given. It was because he believed in God that it was credited to him as righteousness. In the Greek, that word credited or counted means to put in one's bank account. In other words, because of Abraham's belief in God, righteousness was given to him. And what is true of Abraham is true for each one of us when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. It's credited to us as righteousness. We are forgiven. Our sins are washed away. Not because of anything that we have done, just like Abraham, but because we have believed. The challenge that so many of us face is to believe God that this is true. To actually take God at his word, that what his word says is enough. John 3.16, God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You see, is that enough? Do we believe that to be true or do we want to add something to that scripture? Abraham believed God, credited to him as righteousness. You? There's nothing else to add, my friends. We are saved by faith alone, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul expounds this a little bit more in the other couple of verses that we read. You see, verses 7 to 9, the Jewish people were proud of their relationship with Abraham. Verse 8, Paul quotes Genesis 12, verse 3. In you, that's Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. You see, the story of Scripture is the story of God's grace for all people. All people. Abraham was a pagan idol worshiper. But God blessed him to become the father of the Jewish nation. 
to have multiple descendants, to make his name great, all by the grace of God. You see, every character in Scripture is not by what they do, it's by God's grace. It wasn't Joshua's courage, it was God's grace that won the battle of Jericho. It wasn't David's good looks that made him the greatest king of Israel, but God's grace. It wasn't Nehemiah's hard work that built the walls of Jerusalem. It was God's grace. Scripture is a story from beginning to end of God's grace. That's the point that Paul is making. And verses 10 to 12, he says, look, the law requires obedience in all things. And failure leads to a curse. And all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 22 to 23. Jew, Gentile, pastor, vicar, lawyer, teacher, nurse, whatever your profession, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. No one, verse 11, no one is justified before God by the law. We are not made right with God by the law. So you say, Mark, well, what does the law do? The law helps us to know God's nature. The law helps us to know God's best way to live our lives. The law shows us what is best for us. But the law never, ever makes us right with God. The law never, ever gives us the Holy Spirit. The law never, ever gives us freedom. The law never, ever makes us children of God. You say, well, Mark, it sounds also helpless, also hopeless, also depressing. Yes, it is without Jesus. Because verse 13 tells us that Jesus has redeemed us. What a wonderful word, redeemed us. You say, Mark, well, what does redeemed us mean? Well, the best picture is the picture from the book of Exodus where the Israelites were in slavery. They cried out to God for help. They cried out to God because they wanted to be free from slavery, but there was nothing that they could do. So God sent an angel of death. They put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. And as a result, God's people were redeemed and set free. Jesus is prophesied to be our redeemer. Luke 1 verse 68. Jesus, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, is our Passover lamb. You see, the powerful intervention from God who sent Jesus to die on that cross redeems us from the curse of sin and slavery. You would have read there that cursed is the one who hung on a tree. What did Jesus do? He died on a cross. He died under the divine curse. He bore the curse of the law for each one of us. You and I, we are under the curse of our sin and shame. But Jesus, Jesus died for us so that we can place our sin and our shame on that cross and we can walk away redeemed and set free. Only Jesus 
can do this. Only Jesus. And verse 14, verse 14 says this. It says, so in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's you and I. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In Christ Jesus, the promise of Abraham is ours. Friends, Jesus is all we need. Let me just tell you a story that I heard a number of years ago. It's a story of a wealthy man who was a widower. And his widower had a passion for art. A passion for art that he shared with his son. Now, one autumn, the wealthy man's son left for war. And a few weeks later, very sadly, his son died. Died in battle whilst helping a wounded man. And the old man received a telegram and he was devastated at the death of his son. He faced a lonely Christmas on his own without his son. And on Christmas morning, there was a knock on his door. And the man, the old man, went to the door and opened the door. And there was a soldier at the door with a large package. He said, you don't know me, sir, but I was a friend of your son. In fact, I was the one that he rescued and which led to him dying on the battlefield. I'm an artist too, and I want to give you this painting. The old man unwrapped the portrait of his son. It wasn't a work of genius, but there was a real likeness to his son. The old man spent Christmas Day gazing at the picture of this son above the fireplace. The following spring, the old man died and passed away. The art world were in huge anticipation about the sale of this man's paintings. All of his works of art were to be auctioned the following Christmas Day. People from all around the world gathered and the auction began. But rather strangely, the auction began with the painting of the old man's son. The auctioneer said, opening bidding, £100 for this painting of the old man's son. There was silence in the room. And then some murmurings. What about the good stuff? No one cares about this. It's not a very good painting. Can we move on to the really good pieces of art? No, said the auctioneer. We have to sell this one first. Finally, a friend of the old man said, will you take 50 quid for that painting? The auctioneer said, going, going, gone. His hammer banged down on the desk. Right, now came the voices from the back of the room. Can we get on with the auction? Can we get on with the treasures? Can you bring out the masterpieces, the works of art that we've been waiting for? But the auctioneer got up, put on his coat, and said to everyone as he walked out of the door, the auction is over. What do you mean? There was uproar in the room. There's millions of pounds of paintings that need to be sold. I've traveled all the way from Russia. I've traveled all the way from America to come here. What do you mean? Very simple, said the auctioneer. 
according to the will of the Father. Whoever takes the Son gets it all. You see, if you get Jesus, you get everything. You get Jesus, you get everything. Justification with God, made right with God. Eternal life, life evermore. The Holy Spirit, God with us. And I could go on and on and on. It's all yours in Christ Jesus. You get Jesus, you get everything. So that's the scriptural argument. So bear with me. So we have looked at Paul's personal argument that the Holy Spirit saves you. Salvation is through the Holy Spirit alone. And then we've looked at a scriptural argument. Saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Then he finishes his argument with the logical argument. Let's read verses 15 to the end of the chapter. Galatians chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God, and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred to had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What Paul is doing here, 
And it's quite a complex passage, but what he is doing here is following a logical argument that the law points us to Jesus. You see, you've got to remember the context he's speaking into. The Judaizers wanted to argue that the giving of the law, in other words, the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai, that changed the original covenant and promise with Abraham. That's what they were arguing. That's what they were coming at, the Christians in Galatia. But God made the covenant with Abraham first. A promise, a covenant was made. God initiated it, and it was made with Abraham. It was a covenant of grace between God and Abraham. Abraham did not initiate it. Abraham did not make the promises to God. It was purely God's grace and God's initiative to Abraham. And in verse 16, we read that God made that promise not only to Abraham, but also to Christ. The word it used there a number of times is to the seed. It's the seed that's talked about in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, straight after the fall, where there is the promise of the seed, which is the promise of Jesus, the one who will crush the Satan, the serpent's head. And what Paul is saying here is that this promise is made to Abraham, but that is also made to the seed, which is Christ. And Moses' law, which comes after the promise, does not change that covenant. The law, the Ten Commandments, are not greater than the promise given between God and Abraham. They were given centuries after that covenant, and they cannot change what came before. So you can read in Exodus 19 the account of Moses getting the Ten Commandments up Mount Sinai. It's very impressive. There's thunder and lightning and clouds and God's presence, and and, and the people of God trembled with fear. But I really want to help you here to show you that the law was temporary. The Ten Commandments, the law given was temporary. And verse 19 tells us that it's temporary until Jesus comes. The law does not provide life. Verse 21, the law regulates life. The law shows you how to live life but it does not provide spiritual life. Because it says in those verses, if life and righteousness could have come through the law, then Jesus never needed to come and he never needed to die on the cross. Law, the law is given to reveal our sin, verse 19 and 22. You see, the law shows us our guilt. Grace then shows us forgiveness. The Lord does not make us sinners, but what it does is it reveals that we are. There's an example in James chapter 1, verse 22 to 23, that says the law is like a mirror. In other words, you look into the law, you look into the mirror, and you see that your face is dirty. That's what the law does. It shows you 
that you need to be cleansed. It shows you that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but it doesn't cleanse you. Only the grace of God, the blood of Jesus, can cleanse you of that dirt and that shame. So you see, the law reveals our sin, and it shows us that we need a Savior. And verses 23 to 26, the law shows us that that it was there to prepare for Christ. Verse 24, look at this, verse 24. The law was our guardian until Christ came. Now, in Roman and Greek culture, wealthy, rich Romans and Greeks would employ a well-educated slave to look after the children, to educate them and look after them until they grew up into adulthood, to teach them, to discipline them, so that they could read and write, so that they could carry themselves in everyday life. Or think of it a bit like an old school governess from your kind of Jane Eyre, Bronte sisters kind of world. You know, that kind of an image, someone who would look after the kids and teach them and train them in how to grow to become an adult. But the point with a guardian is a guardian is not permanent. Because once that child reaches adulthood, they no longer have any need for the guardian. And this is the point that Paul is making. The law was to prepare the nation of Israel until the coming of the promised Messiah, until the coming of Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, it is totally right and proper that the Israelites were given the law in Exodus 19 to God's people, and that law was to teach and to train the Israelites to teach and to train the Israelites and to get them ready for the coming of the Messiah, to get them ready for Jesus when then they would no longer need a tutor. They would no longer need uh, someone to teach them because Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. The law shows us that we need a savior. And this this is so important to grasp. What what does the law do? The law points us to Jesus. You see, the law and Jesus work together. The law is to throw you onto Jesus. The law says, I am guilty. Well, it throws you onto Jesus who sets us free and deals with us and deals with our sin and shame. The law says you are condemned by your actions. Jesus says you are loved, a child of God, and set free. The law says you are separated from God by what you have done. But Jesus says through me, through the cross, you are united with God. This is is just wonderful truth. When you get hold of it, it is absolutely wonderful to see the purpose of the law, that the purpose of the law is to point you to Jesus. It works together with Jesus, not in confliction to Jesus. 
And then right at the end of the chapter, Paul finishes with some wonderful truths where he says, but now you are sons of God. You are children of God. You have gone from being condemned and guilty and under the, the, the charge of a tutor to being sons of God, accepted, adopted into the family of God and set free. Verse 28, one of the most wonderful passages in the New Testament. Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's landing here. He's saying, you're united in Christ, not divided There's no distinction of race. There's no distinction of rank. There's no distinction of male and female. No, you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? It's wonderful and it's liberating and it's beautiful. So let me me sum up. We've covered a lot of ground Genesis, sorry, Galatians chapter 3 is a, is, is a rich chapter. But I hope I've given you a handle on it and a handle on the rich truths that are in that chapter. Because Paul is saying to the Galatians, look, don't be so foolish. Don't move away from Jesus. Don't move away from the grace of God. Look at your own life. It was the work of the Holy Spirit that saved you. Look at Scripture, because again and again and again, from Abraham right through the pages of Scripture, it is not by what the men and women of the Bible do. It is purely by the grace of God. They are saved by their faith in God and not by their actions. And then look at the logic. And he walks through the logic of the law. And he walks through the purpose of the law. That the purpose of the law is to point us to Jesus. is to show us our need for a savior. Think of that example in, Genesis, in, sorry, in James chapter 1. That we look into the mirror. The law shows us we are dirty. But the grace of God says, come to me and I will cleanse you. Come to me and I will wash you clean. Come to me, you child of God. Let your past be left behind. Let your feet be put on a rock. And let you walk into today knowing that you are a loved child of God. If you get Jesus, you get everything. If you get Jesus, you get everything. Remember that story of the wealthy man and the works of art. If you get Jesus, you get everything. That's a wonderful, beautiful truth. Now, in a minute, we're going to go into breaking bread together. We're going to share communion together. Because the wonderful thing about the table, the wonderful thing about communion is that we are all equal. We are all equal at the table. 
where we break bread and we dip it in the wine. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The law shows each and every one of us that we are sinners in need of a savior. But we come to the table and we break bread, the bread of life, and we dip it in the wine, which is a reminder of the blood of Christ. And it is a picture and it is symbolism that shows us we are loved, we are forgiven, and we are set free. Can I ask the